0: We're talking about the four last things. I put them all in R's so that we can remember them. The return of the king, the resurrection of the dead, the great day of reckoning, and the renewal of all things. Uh, I wanted to point that out because I was running through this with Lynette the other day and, and I said "That's alliteration, right? You see it? They all start with R so that we can remember it. She said, oh, yeah, that's helpful. I didn't realise. So I'm pointing it out so that we can see. The return of the king, the resurrection of the dead, the day of reckoning and the renewal of all things. And this morning I want to talk with you about the return of the king and the great hope that it's held out to us in the scriptures, that God himself will come and dwell amongst us forever. That's where we're headed. Have it, I pray. Father God, we thank you that you made us for yourself. You made us to dwell with you. And we thank you that even despite our sin, you have found a way to come amongst us in Jesus. We thank you that you are with us now by your spirit and that in the end, you, Father, Son and Spirit, will come and dwell amongst us forever. We thank you for that great grace and we pray that you'd help us to understand it and to rejoice in it and to see its implications for how we live this morning as we read your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I want more. I want more technology. The new iPad's going to be released 25th of March. I got the email from Apple yesterday. They know I want more. That's why they sent me the email. I want a bigger house. It's getting a bit squashy with our three kids and a fourth one on the way. I want more money. I just slipped that in there. There's a fourth one on the way in case you... (laughs) I want more overseas trips, I want more time with my wife and kids, I want more friends, I want better friends, I want more status, I want more recognition, I want more. How about you? Do you want more? Maybe it's just a Sydney thing. (laughs) I think many of us want more. We're restless, we're dissatisfied, we're hungry for bigger and better and more, and what many of us don't realise is that that longing for more is actually a displaced longing for God. Augustine put it like this. You have made us for yourself, is praying, speaking to God. Augustine, the great church father from the 3rd, 4th century. You have made us for yourself, O oh God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He's saying we were made for God, and until we find our rest in God, we long for more and more of all sorts of things, trying to fill that hole that only God can fill. Blaise Pascal, a French theologian from somewhere in the 17th century, I think he was, reflecting what on Augustine said, said this, what else does this craving, this longing for more, and this helplessness proclaim But that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. The grass is always greener over there. Though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. God made us for himself. He made us for his presence. And we're going to be restless. We're going to be longing for more until we live fully in his presence. And so we try to fill up our lives with other things, filling up a need that only God himself can fill. And so some of us, even those of us who know God as our Heavenly Father, feel that God is distant from us. Uh, and we, I don't know if Bette Midler belongs in this company of Augustine and Blaise Pascal, but uh, she put it like this. God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us, she says, from a distance. And we feel distant from God. And we try and fill that gap, meet that need, with other things. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I want more. How about you? The great news is that God not only made us for himself, he's also promised to dwell with us forever to meet that need even despite our sin. Let me show you how it works in the Bible. The promise of, God, of God's presence from the beginning. I'm going to read for you from Genesis chapter 2, and note here the wonderful presence of God at creation. This is such a beautiful passage. After God had created the world, or in this parallel account in Genesis chapter 2, picking up at verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What a beautifully intimate picture. God forming man out of the dust, bending down, uh, as it were, if we can use that language of God, and breathing into Adam's nostrils, his own spirit, his own breath, and allowing Adam to live. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Why? To provide for this man that he'd created. And there he put the man. Whom He had formed a place where God would dwell with the man and live with the man out of the ground that the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Why did God plant these trees? And good for food to provide for the man food and sustenance, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God noticing the needs of the man said for the first time, it's not good That the man should be alone. Up until this point in the creation story, everything has been good and good and very good. And then God says, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. And so, just as God brought the man into being and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and just as God provided for the man a place to live, and just as God provided for him also food to eat, now he provides for him a helper, a partner. And yet, the way in which God does this is so. Beautiful, so wonderful. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man. Perhaps these will be appropriate partners for the man. God knew, of course, they wouldn't be, and yet he brings them to the man so that the man can see whether these are appropriate partners or not. And here's the beautiful bit. He brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. What a beautiful picture of intimacy, that these creatures that God has made He gives the man the job of naming them. And so you can just imagine it. God brings up the giraffe. What are we going to call this one, Adam? And God is there waiting to see what the man would call them. And Adam says, how about giraffe? And God says, yeah, that's a good one. Let's call this one giraffe. (laughs) What about this one, Adam? I I gave it a long mane. I I gave it a tail, sharp teeth. What What should we call this one? It's got an impressive roar. Adam says, let's call that a lion. God says, yeah, let's call it a lion. You see, this, this is a picture of intimacy, of the fellowship that God has with the man. God brings the animals to man to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, that was its name. And the man gave to all the cattle and all the birds of the air and to every animal of the field names. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God calls to deep sleep To fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs. Again, how intimate is this picture? God is deeply, closely involved in the creation of the woman out of one of the very ribs of the man, and he closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man again, just as God provided for the man life and a place to live and food. Now he has provided for the man a partner. And the man said, this at last, you've got to read this with an exclamation mark and with a a joyous shout, this at last is bone of my bones, unlike the animals. This one belongs with me and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man she was taken. Thank you, God, for this wonderful provision for me. And therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, Often we notice that they were naked before each other. What a beautiful picture of intimacy between the man and his wife. But notice also they're naked here before God. The whole picture here in Genesis 2 is of people, two people, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, living before the face of God, in the presence of God, in intimate fellowship with God, because that's what they were made for which is what makes Genesis 3 and the sad story of the entry of sin into the world such a terrible tragedy. Notice the contrast here in chapter 3 verse 8. After Eve has been deceived by the servant and has eaten and then has given some of the fruit to Adam and he has also eaten and they've disobeyed God, disobeyed God's direct word, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and the wife, instead of delighting in God's presence, instead of being naked and unashamed in God's presence, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord whose presence they were made for and now they're hiding from him. But the Lord God called to the man and said to the man, where are you? Their fellowship has been broken. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid Because I was naked and I hid myself. Rather than enjoying the fullness of fellowship naked in God's presence, the man is now afraid and hiding and unwilling to be naked before his God. And so God brings curses on the man and on the woman and on the ground. And then the Lord God said, and the snake, the Lord God said, see the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. The man has taken to himself, the human beings have taken to themselves the prerogative that belongs only to God of deciding what is good and what is evil. That's what it means that they have the knowledge of good and evil. They've taken that job unto themselves, that job that belongs only to God of saying what is good and what is evil. And God knows that the man is not equipped for that job. He doesn't have the necessary wisdom to know what is good and evil in God's good world that God made. And so both as a punishment and as a protection for the man, the man, God casts the man out of his presence, out of the garden of Eden, that he shouldn't take from the tree of life and live forever in this state of nakedness and shame before God. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, angels, and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. We're reading this Bible with our kids. I don't know if you've seen it, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, Beautiful uh, illustrations, but more importantly, wonderful words which capture faithfully the biblical story and show you the connections all the way through as it leads forward to Jesus. And at this point it says... Well in another story it would all be over and that would have been the end and it's got a big the end down the bottom and it's true isn't it in another story that would have been the end where God who created these people for himself to live in his presence to delight in him and to obey his word and they have shunned him and disobeyed his word so that they're now afraid of him and their fellowship with him is broken in another story that would have been the end but not in the story where God is at the centre. And so you turn the page, it's beautiful, but not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. And that's so wonderfully true. And so what we see throughout the rest of the story of the Bible is the outworking of God's plans to come and dwell again amongst his people, to restore us to that kind of intimate fellowship with him that we were created for, that we all long for, that mistakenly we try and fill with other things by which only God can fill. You see it first in the story of Israel. where out of the mass of sinful humanity. God chooses one man and his family, Abraham, and he makes a covenant with that man and his family. And the heart of the covenant is, I haven't put it on the sheet for you, but it's in Genesis seventeen, seven and 8, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's at the heart of it. That's the purpose of God's call of Abraham is that out of the mess of sin, God will bring Abraham and his family and through them people from all the nations back into fellowship with God so that they will be his people and he will be their God. And so you see that worked out in the story of the nation of Israel when in the book of Exodus God commands Moses to build the tabernacle. This is after they've been slaves in Egypt. And God has brought them out from slavery through the 10 plagues and through the Red Sea and he's brought them to himself at Mount Sinai in the wilderness there. And God then gives Moses commands to build a tabernacle, a tent, a place where God can place his presence amongst his people so that they can set up their uh, tribes around the tent and have God at the centre of their community. Uh, And they prepare for it. Uh, With great preparation. I've been reading through it just recently in my quiet times. and Exodus 25 through the 31. So what's that? Six chapters. And then 35 through the 39. Four more chapters. 11 chapters worth of preparations for the tabernacle. Of building the lampstand and the table and the altar. uh, And uh, the tent itself. And the posts that will hold it up. And all has to be done according to the command that God gives Moses because this is the place where God will put his presence amongst his people. And finally, after all of those preparations, after Moses has done everything that God has commanded, we get to verse 40, the climax of the book of Exodus. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's not the same as the garden. There's still a whole system uh, through which God's people can approach Him a whole system of sacrifices, a whole system of things being clean and unclean. And only one man, once a year, the high priest, can enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle. It's not the same as the garden. And yet, it's a sure sign of God's plan to restore fellowship between himself and his people. And he comes to dwell amongst them in the tabernacle at Mount Sinai. And he goes with them in their wanderings in the desert and as they enter the promised land. And so when they enter the land, again, the key thing is to make preparation for God to be with them, to God to dwell amongst them. And so David, once they've got peace in the land, longs to build the temple. But God says it's not for you, but for your son. And Solomon makes great preparation. And all through 1 Kings 1 to 8, we have the story of Solomon preparing the temple so that God can come again and dwell amongst his people. And finally, in 1 Kings 8, we read this. After seven years of construction, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant, which has... The Ten Commandments, the law that God gave to Moses. The Ark of the Covenant out of the city of David, which is Zion. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant out of of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, that's the temple, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. And when the priests came out of the holy place, again, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, just as it had done in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, so again now in the land, at the temple, God comes to live amongst his people. It's not the same as the garden. There's a whole system of sacrifice. There's a whole system of cleanness and uncleanness. And only the high priest and him only once a year can enter into the most holy place to stand in God's presence. And yet, this is a sign of hope. This is a sign of God's desire, God's plan to come again and dwell fully amongst his people. But just like Adam shunned God's presence, Israel does the same thing. The Old Testament, one way of thinking about it is it's a story of two falls. First there's the fall of Adam and then there's the fall of Israel. You read about it here in Ezekiel Chapters 8 to 11, I've just given you some snippets. Ezekiel is over in Babylon, having gone with the first group of exiles, which already should be ringing some alarm bells, that some of the people of Israel have been sent by God away from the land where God was going to dwell amongst them. They've been sent to Babylon. And Ezekiel, the prophet, is over there when God does this. The Spirit of God lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, to the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. What's going on here? What have the people done? Right in the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God put his presence amongst his people, there they've built an idol to another god. It's called here the image of jealousy because it provokes God to jealousy. Because he made his people for himself, and now they've turned from him to a false god, a god made of wood or stone or silver or gold or whatever. And the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision I had seen in the valley. Then God said to me, O mortal, lift up your eyes now in the direction of the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and there, north of the altar gate, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. He said to me, mortal, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, yet you will see still greater abominations. And I've cut out the rest of this passage, but if you read later through Ezekiel chapter 8 there, you'll see that there are women in the temple worshipping Tammuz, a Babylonian idol. And there are men in the temple, 25 of them, bowing down with their backs to the holy place and their faces towards the sun because they're worshipping the sun and they're turning their backs on the God who rescued them. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up, Ezekiel says, from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. You see what God is doing? He's withdrawing his presence from his people because of their sin. Just as he drove Adam out of the garden, so now he's about to withdraw his presence from the people of Israel and drive them out of the land. And so if you keep reading through Ezekiel, you will see chapter 10, verse 18, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight as they went out with the wheels beside them. That's referring back to the image that Ezekiel had seen of God dwelling amongst his people at the beginning of the book. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. Not only has God now gone out from the temple up to the threshold of the temple, he's come to the east gate of the temple Then the cherubim, chapter 11, lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the Lord God of Israel was above them and the glory of the Lord ascended from the middle of the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. God has taken his presence away from the temple and his presence is resting on the Mount of Olives and you might ask, why would God do that? Why would God remove his presence from his people? Well, the first answer is because of their sin, because they've refused to obey him and to worship him, the God who created them and saved them. The other reason is so that he can bring judgment upon them. And within a few years, God sends King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and all his army, and they capture Jerusalem after a siege, and they destroy the city, and they burn the temple, and they take the holy things from in the temple over to Babylon. Because God has abandoned his people in their sin and left them to their own devices and withdrawn his presence from them. Just like Adam in the garden, created for intimacy with God and yet spurned that by his sin. Israel, created for God's presence, spurned that relationship with God and so God left them and abandoned them to judgment. And in any other story... That would have been the end. But not in this story, because this is a story about the God of grace and the God of hope. And so God speaks to them even ahead of time when they're in exile through the prophet Isaiah. And he says this. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem, the city where God had put his presence. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall enter you no more. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. He's speaking to Jerusalem while she is captive under the thumb of the Babylonians. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter Zion. And here's the good news. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces announces peace, who brings good news Uh, we could translate that, who brings the gospel, who announces salvation. And what is this good news? What is this gospel? Who says to Zion, the kingdom of God has come. Your God reigns. Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy. For in plain sight they see what? The return of the Lord to Zion. That's the great hope because that's what Adam was made for. That's what Israel was saved for, to live in God's presence, to have God dwell amongst them. And so this is the gospel, this is the good news, that God will return to Zion, that God will dwell amongst his people. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. How? Because the Lord himself will return and meet their needs. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Well, when Isaiah spoke that, it was just a promise. But what we have seen is that promise in its full richness. Well, now and not yet in its full richness. Let me show you what I mean. No one expected the promise to be fulfilled the way it was. One quiet night in the back blocks of Bethlehem there when no one was looking, when God slipped in to his creation, re-entered his world in the person of Jesus. John puts it like this in the Gospel. He's speaking about in the beginning which reminds us of Genesis when God created the world and God's plan to dwell amongst his people back in Genesis. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He's speaking about some being, this word of God who was with God and who was who was God, sharing God's divine life, God in every way, Except that he was the Word and not God, or later on he was the Son and not the Father. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. He was there at the creation. In fact, everything was brought into being through this one. When God flung the stars into space and shaped the planets and brought life to the earth and created the flowers and the trees and the giraffe and the lion, this one was there. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. And here's John's wonderful news. This word of God who was with God and who was God, who is God, became flesh. It's a very strong word, isn't it? Not just became human, he could have said that, but he chose to say became flesh. Another translation for that word would be meat. It's that strong a word. It's a a word about material reality, flesh and blood, bones and sinews. This word became flesh and lived among us. Uh, Or actually, in the original, a better way of saying it would be he set up his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us just as God lived with Israel in the Old Testament. Now God has come to dwell amongst his people God came into the neighbourhood. God set up his tent amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Who is this one? The glory of, as of a father's only son. Okay, well now we're getting close. Full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but it is God the only son who is close to the father's heart who has made God known. Of course, we're talking about Jesus. The one who was with God in the beginning, who was God and now has come to dwell amongst us. People look in all sorts of places for God, don't they? I was just chatting, chatting to Lisa Hall over morning tea and she was telling us about the, the markets that they have up at U... Guy. Uh, that's it. Uh, once a month or something. Uh, and recently they were having a, a health markets uh, and she said the people with the crystal balls were there and the meditations and the tarot cards uh, and the reincarnation stall. Uh, and more than that, there are people who look for God not just in those alternative routes, but also in overseas travel. They think they'll find God, perhaps, or find themselves. People who look for God in horoscopes, people who look for God inside themselves, people who look for God in in the creation, in the world around them, or look for God in other people. And, of course, what we know is that there's no need to look for God in all of those places because God has shown himself so clearly in Jesus. And if we want to know who God is, and if we want to know God's plan to come and live with us, to share life with us, we don't need to go any further than to look at Jesus, who is God with us, God amongst us. But then as you read through the Gospel, and I've stuck with the Gospel of John here, Jesus begins to speak about going, returning to the Father. And you think, what's going on here? Uh, He's come amongst us, Only to leave? And the disciples were thinking that in John chapter 14. And we'll pick it up in verse 18, a couple of verses in there, where Jesus has told them that he's leaving. He's returning to the Father. But he says, I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming to you. I think, how can that be? You just said you're going. (laughs) In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, and because I leave, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jump down to verse 23. Jesus answered, Those who love me will keep my word and my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. How can that be if Jesus is, he's just said, he's going to the Father? How can he and the Father come and make their home with his people? Well, if you jump back to verse 15, he's given us the answer already. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another advocate or counselor or helper to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. And he abides with you and he will be with you. What a beautiful picture that is of the Father and the Son coming to dwell with us, with us to make their home with us by, this, by uh, the Spirit. And it's worth stopping to take stock of that for a second. How much are you aware of that? God's presence with you by his spirit each day. That means first and foremost, God is with us here and now. God God is with us as we gather together. But not just that. God is with us as we go home. God is with us as we go to our workplaces. God is with us in every moment of every day, wherever we are, no matter what we're doing. God has come to dwell amongst us by his spirit. And that should be a great comfort to us, shouldn't it? I remember when I was a a little kid, I was scared of the dark. And I think the main thing I was scared about was being left on my own in my room at night. I didn't know who would be there or what might happen. And I'm sure those who've got little kids can Uh, have seen this in their own kids and our kids are starting to get to that stage where they don't like being left alone in the dark. But of course, they're not alone. We're not alone. We're never alone because God is with us by his spirit. And I know some of us struggle with loneliness and that's a real struggle because it's not good for the man to be alone and God made us, yes, for human company and so it's it's right that we struggle with loneliness if we're lacking human company because that's part of what God designed us for and yet we're never truly alone because God is with us by his spirit it should also be a challenge to us that God is with us by his spirit shouldn't it because I don't know about you but the times when I am most tempted to sin is when when i'm alone when no one can see what I'm doing, when I think I can cover my tracks in the dark. And yet, even there, God is with us. God is with me by his spirit, calling me to live his way, to make godly choices. God is with us now by his spirit. And yet, there's even more. Because... Even though the Father and the Son have come to make their home with us by God's, by his Spirit, the Father and the Son are not here directly, personally. They're here by the Spirit. And so the promise is that one day the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will come to dwell with his people together. In the New Testament, this is mainly put in terms of Jesus coming. I've got just a couple of quick examples for you here. Philippians chapter 3, Paul's writing to the Philippians and he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And you kind of expect him to say, and when we die, we'll go and join God there. But that's not what he says. He says our citizenship is in heaven and it is from there, from there, out of there, that we are expecting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippians understood this. They were a Roman colony. They were a bunch of retired soldiers who'd been sent out from Rome all the way over to Philippi, which is in northern Greece, a long way in those days. And they were on the edges of the empire. And they often felt threatened by the barbarian tribes that were around there. The barbarians didn't think they were barbarians. That was just what the Romans called them. Uh, but they were, the, the Roman colonists there in Philippi felt threatened, often by these barbarian tribes. And so what would they do when they were in trouble? Call back on Rome. And remember, our citizenship is with Rome. And from there we can call on a saviour. And so Paul knows that the Philippians have this kind of understanding and he writes to them and he says, our citizenship is in heaven. We belong with the Father and he is going to send the saviour for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's from there that we are expecting a saviour who will come and transform the body of our humiliation so that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. That's talking about resurrection. We'll talk about that later. And by the power that enables him to make all things subject to himself, he will take control, reclaim his world when he comes. Or in Thessalonians, the passage that was read for us, verse 16, The Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangels' call and with the sound of a trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air so that we will be with the Lord forever. Sometimes uh, we we misunderstand this passage because we don't have the same mindset that the Thessalonians had when they first received this letter from Paul. We'll meet the Lord in the air. That sounds like we're going up to meet him in the clouds. Uh, And in fact, that is what's meant. But in the background here is what the Thessalonians knew happened quite regularly in their experience. Whenever a Roman emperor would come and visit their town, or some other dignitary, some high-ranking official or general, what would the people do, or what would you do, if the Roman emperor is coming to visit your little town? You go out to meet him, right? And in fact, the further you go out to meet him, the more honoured he is, and you take your confetti, and you throw a tick-tape parade, and you escort him back into the city. And you say, welcome, O great one, into our city. And that was regular practice in the Roman Empire, of going out to meet an emperor or a dignitary or a general, of meeting him on the road, of throwing a celebration for him, and then escorting him back into the city. And Paul knows that, of course. He'd probably seen them, perhaps even participated in them. And he knows the Thessalonians know all about it. And so he says, the Lord will descend from heaven... And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together and meet him in the air and escort him as he comes to dwell with us forever. And so we will be with the Lord forever. But of course there's even deeper echoes here for Paul and for us. It's not just about Roman generals coming. It's also about, well, see if any of these sound familiar. The Lord descending the sound of a trumpet, the archangel's call. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that's exactly what happened at Sinai when God came to his people and dwelt with them in the tabernacle. And what's Paul saying here? Well, the Lord Jesus will come and dwell with us as God came and dwelt amongst his people in the past. So you see, our great hope, the great hope held out for us in the New Testament is not that we will go to heaven when we die, but that heaven will come to us. And you see that most fully here in Revelation 21, which we'll come back to a bit later on in the weekend. But John says, I saw a new heaven, a vision he has been given here by Jesus. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem doing what? Coming down, out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, that's the throne of God, saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and there's that covenant promise way back from Genesis. He will dwell with them as their God, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Later on, John says, I saw no temple in that city. Why not? Well, you don't need a temple when the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb have come to dwell. And then later on, Jesus says, I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with his testimony for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, and the Spirit, who's with the church, and the bride, that's the church, say, come, Lord Jesus. Let everyone who hears say, come, come. And the one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. You see, the great hope is that we should dwell with God forever. That's what we were made for in the beginning. That's what God promises us in the end. And the way that will come about is not that we will go to heaven to stay with God forever, but that he will come and dwell with us. It's not that we go to heaven, but that heaven comes to us that's exactly what God has promised to do so how do we live in that hope of the presence of God well I've got for you there 1 John 3 1 to 3 and we might talk about that a bit later because it says in the very last verse we will see him as he is and all who have this hope of seeing him purify themselves we deal with sin in our lives we confess our sins and purify ourselves What I want to focus on now though is one other way of living in the hope of the presence of God Uh, as I close and I want to say I think we need to work at this of cultivating the sense recognizing the reality that God is with us how often do you catch yourself going through a whole day without prayer Uh, forgetting really that God is there with you maybe you're more godly than I am but that's certainly my experience way too often That so easily the busyness of life and the demands of young kids and the work and whatever it is in your life crowds out the reality that God is there with us by his spirit now as a deposit, a down payment, a guarantee, a sign that one day he will come again and dwell with us fully and finally for all eternity. And so I wonder how can you cultivate that recognition that God is with you today today tomorrow, every day. One of the simple ways has got to be prayer, doesn't it? How's this for an idea? Why not make it your habit before you get out of bed in the morning, before your feet touch the ground, that you will acknowledge that God is there with you in bed, even in your half-asleep, groggy state, (laughs) and ask, God, make me aware of your presence with me today so that I might please you in the way I live. Perhaps you can set up some habits in your life to remind you of God's presence with you by his spirit today as you look forward to the day when he'll dwell with us forever. Uh, Saying grace at meals is one of those, isn't it? A way of reminding ourselves that God is here with us and that this food is ours only because God has given it to us. I don't know how you'll do it. There's a couple of suggestions. But I think we need to cultivate this recognition of the reality that God is with us now by his Spirit as we look forward to the day when he'll be with us fully, Father, Son and Spirit, in the new world. And as we do that, I think that will help us to deal with the problem I started with, this need for more. If you're like me and you want more, then remind yourself, I have God, the creator of the universe, dwelling with me by his Spirit And as he gives me good gifts, I'll thank him for them. But if he decides that that's not for me at this time, that marriage partner that I want, not for me at this time, that bigger house that I long for, not for me at this time, that promotion at work that I uh, have been hoping for, not for me at this time, remind yourself that God is with you, the creator of the universe. And that he will meet your needs, even if it's not in the way that you want them to be met at this time. And that one day, when Jesus comes, we will dwell with him forever. How about I pray? Heavenly Father.